to the Econ Twitter Spaces water cooler that you could join. I've known you for I don't know how long online, but we have met in twice in life, in real life, uh, both times at the AEA conference. I wanted to start with a short story for the listeners to hear a little bit about Noah in real life. We were at the bar and you were on this long, long, detailed excursion on the difference between China and U.S. Navy capabilities. And I thought, why does no one know so much about ships and planes? It was really puzzling to me. And it, it makes me wonder, other than the things we know you that you know, so anime, Japanese, Japan, Japan sci-fi rabbits, <laughs> and also navies and airships, as I'm sharing with everybody, what are your other niche secret areas of knowledge or interests or hobbies? What, what is something you can tell, oh, tell everybody that we didn't know? Or do we know everything? Has it all come out? I don't know. The The problem is that these, you know, it just seems so normal to me that people would know about a whole bunch of random stuff from reading Wikipedia. Uh, let's see. I know about hallucinogens. <laughs> um, yeah. Didn't yeah. know that about you. I know about, um, I don't know, because it all seems, it all seems very normal to me. Like I don't know about <laughs> Mongol history. I know a lot about Mongol history. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know about all the like leaders who followed Genghis Khan and like who came after him and like all the mistakes they made and why the Mongol Empire broke up and why it had to break up and the particulars of Mongol laws and things like that because I've just read a million books on like that stuff. Mongol, Mongol history, psychedelics, yeah, navies. What what ties it all together? I don't know. Just like Wikipedia, basically, it's all just from Wikipedia binges followed by book binges. That's how I learn about these things. I just um, you know, I wonder what. The Mongol Empire was really big. Let me read the Wikipedia article about it. So I read all the Wikipedia articles about it. And I'm like, well, let me buy 10 books about this. And then I like, you know, buy a whole bunch of books and read it. And then I just, you know, it becomes this thing that I randomly talk about. And, you know, and then, and then through Twitter, you start learning more about this because other Mongol history buffs will pop up and like tell you little pieces that you didn't know. And eventually you become like that annoying guy who knows a whole bunch of Mongol history. And so then, you know, and it, it only came in handy once in life, which was when I was at this conference at the Bank of England in um i think it was 2014 and i was um it might have been 2013 i don't remember but then the uh, a mongolian central banker guy was there and we sort of bonded over me knowing like you know tons and tons of details of his country's history and so and that came in handy that one time but other than that not really so that's the that's your learning style start with wikipedia then 10 books then join the twitter communities to to learn some more yeah, stuff wikipedia is amazing you can learn so much math on wikipedia like you can just learn, you could just learn like, I don't know, all of set theory. Oh, you could just learn it probably by reading Wikipedia. Do you still do math stuff for fun? Because you are one of the economists that came to economics through being a fallen physicist, right? <laughs> so is that, right. is that stuff fun for you? Do you still do math for fun? You know, I, I, I don't, and I really, I should get back into doing that for fun, but I just, you know, I haven't done that, that recently at all. So, but I, I need to get back into that. Math was never fun for me, but there are things that I don't know anymore that I used to know that I feel like I should relearn that, um, even though I don't really have a reason to. Like, I don't think I could do continuous time optimization problems anymore, but like, I feel but like I should relearn fun. that. That's not, that's, that, see, the problem is that the, the math that's actually useful for the world is not fun at all, in my opinion. It's like the, the most useful math is, is linear algebra, and linear algebra is just not fun. Right. It's forcing your brain to become MATLAB. <laughs> You know, that's what it is. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not fun. Like, you know, there are people who just naturally think like that eigenvalues are the music of the spheres. And those people are weird. I don't understand them. Like, uh, but the, yeah, the math is analysis, I think. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I've always I've always had a hard time. Um, you know, I'm not one of those big brain guys who can just hold like the big complicated math problems in their head and move them around. And uh, it's never very elucidating for me. Right. I, I was thinking the other day, you know, I was thinking like if I remembered if I remembered more analysis, I would be more easily able to answer the question of is infinite growth uh, possible? And um, the answer you know, eventually you get that the answer is infinite growth on Earth is not possible because the Earth has a, um, the Earth's quantum state is actually like a, um, a compact space. And so then you, but then in the in terms of the whole universe, of course, infinite growth is, is, is possible. But then in terms of just Earth, no, it's not. But then like, you know, for a second there, I really had to like think about theorems about like maximizing, uh, you know, functions on like a, a compact space. And You almost hit the whiteboard again. I almost hit the whiteboard again. All right, what were we actually here to talk about? Not that. No, well, I do want to talk a little bit about Noah Smith. I do want to talk a little bit about Noah Smith stuff. It's so, maybe more interesting because, like, if you get Matt Iglesias on here, it's like, oh, Matt Iglesias is, you know, famous for for being the guy who said X and Y and Z, and Noah Smith is famous, you know, for being the guy who likes rabbits and anime. <laughs> that's not that's not strictly true. You also created the, the memes about the how people think they are versus how they seem on Econ Twitter, right? That's very true. I did do that. I, I have to reprise that at some point because the Econo trolls have only gotten That's more right. <laughs> ridiculous. And they, yeah, they've only gotten well, worse. Let me ask you about your career. How is Substack going? Um, you're, you're taking a pause at Bloomberg. Um, right. It's going pretty well. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, Substack's going pretty well. I, I definitely am enjoying it. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to find the right balance between writing a lot of stuff and writing like a few big deep dive articles and writing like a lot of small frequent ones because my impulse is always to do small frequent ones but then substack is different than blogging in that the small frequent ones appear as emails and then people are like ah why am i getting you know all these emails right. and, short posts? and so then i'm still you know trying to strike the right balance but i think that the bigger articles always get the best response on substack and i think part of that is because it makes it worth re you know receiving an email about it um, yeah, that make that makes sense. I think Freddie DeBoer sets it up so that not everyone gets all of his automatically. I think you can do that, right? So you could write shorter ones. Just yeah, I know you can. That's right. And then like people are like, wait a second, why are there posts on this thing that I didn't get an email for? And I, so it's what I really just have to do is, right. is start doing some some surveys to see what people actually like. Um, Substack is you know it's a very new company, new interface, very rudimentary tools for assessing like you know engagement and readership and traffic and things like that. Well, one of the things I did ask Matt, speaking of Matt, and I'll ask you the same, is do you think that, that Substacks can be launched into bigger media things? Like, it's almost a little bit worrying that the technology is sort of built for, you know, it's really great at what it is, but it's like kind of limiting in that it, it doesn't seem like com in comparison to a blog, it's as well suited to grow into bigger media things. Does that Do you think that's true? And does it bother you? Well, I don't know. I mean, so, you know, one thing is that in terms of of just the business of content production, which I almost never think about. So, so one thing that's really good about one thing that's really good about being a reasonably high-profile person is that I can actually make a living off Substack pretty easily without thinking about turning myself into a brand. You know, I don't have right. to think about whether to launch a YouTube channel and have official like no opinion T-shirts or any of that stuff. I don't have to think of myself as a business. I just like write some blog posts and like it, and like I earn a salary, and that's good. And I can, you know, pay my overpriced san francisco rent at least and so that's um and that's good and so uh i don't have to think about that if i were doing that you know then maybe youtube would be involved and things like that and in fact one one thing i am going to do by the way that just for fun is do subscribers only chat so for the subscribers we'll have like a zoom chat 
you know, where, where like a, like a little zoom, like meetup and office hours kind of thing where, you know, there'll be a like subscribers only will get an email telling you where this, uh, you know, giving you the link to the zoom. And, that fun. and that'll be fun. But then you, but yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the YouTube thing. And I really think that the YouTube's probably the big growth, uh, thing, uh, maybe TikTok as well. Well, let me ask you about your big oversized, well, not big, your, your, uh, expensive subsidized San Francisco port, your expensive right. San Francisco Let's talk about that. You are a remote worker. You can work from anywhere you want in the world, but you choose one of the most expensive cities in the country. How did that happen? What games? What's what's oh. on San Francisco got? Well, it happens just because like all my, you know, um, industrial cluster effects, essentially. So I can live wherever I want. So many of my friends in America are either in the tech industry or in peripheral related activities or whatever. And then a, a couple of people that just are around where I went to college, which is around here too. And then, um, you know, so everybody sort of coalesced here and moved here. And, you know, there's this phenomenon in America where everyone either moves to like New York, LA or San Francisco, like half, half your friends will coalesce in one of these cities. And then that's the city you move to if you want to be with your friends. And that's what happened to me. And so, um, yeah, basically I just, I moved here because my friends were all here. And uh, the irony is that a lot of them have since moved out. Are you going to move out eventually then if what you came for is leaving? I am. I'm going to move out and probably I'm going to move back to, uh, to Japan. That's probably where I'm headed next. Does this make, are you a pessimist for San Francisco? I am. And it's because of our city's dysfunctional politics. And so, of course, if you've been following this online, you'll see things like Dean Preston, uh, you know, being this popular faux progressive guy who just opposes housing at every turn. You saw that big expose. There's the San Francisco, um, you know, school board uh, people who are getting recalled. There's there's uh, Chesa Boudin, uh, who I blame not only you know, I, I don't really blame him for crime. I, I do blame him for uh, Attack of the Clones being really bad because he was dating Natalie Portman at the time. But then I don't really blame him for high crime, but I, I don't think he's particularly helping or looking good at all. Um, and so then, you know, the, everything's just so screwed up in San Francisco. And then when you read about the history of it, it's always been screwed up. And then when you learn some of the, the particulars of San politics, like the, essentially the supervisors are able to run their districts like little fiefdoms and essentially have veto over anything that gets done in their district. And this is a completely unworkable system in San Francisco. And not only that, the boundaries of San Francisco have been drawn so that the city doesn't include lots of the people who actually have an interest in how in things like housing and transit, who are people who are living in the south suburbs in the East Bay. And so because of the boundaries of the city have been drawn too narrowly and the supervisors run it like little fiefdoms, um, and because the city, so, so and then, then of course there's historical sort of contingent factors, like the city isn't very well connected. Um, there's no, you know, there's the Muni, but then not many people ride the Muni and there's the BART, but that's a commuter rail. And so people, you know, and because of the relative lack of density, people don't sort of, there's no, there's no sort of common point that people organize around that in New York, you have the subway. And I think that poor New Yorkers and rich New Yorkers all feel sort of a, um, a connection to each other because they all ride the same together. And if the train's late, it still affects them all equally. And I think, I think there's an Elton John song about that. <laughs> I think there's. Uh, a schmaltzy, cheesy Elton John song about exactly that with um, sons of bankers, sons of lawyers and whatever, oh, just right, like, yeah. you know, realizing that they're part of a society, <laughs> you know, and, and that really happens in New York. It's cheesy, but it's true. And, um, and it doesn't happen in San Francisco. There's no commonality here. And I credit the subway, but maybe it's something else. And so that's just on top of the dysfunctional way that San Francisco has been set up. The fact that you have to have all these transit agencies combine to do things like Barton Caltrain. Um, instead of New York, where the boroughs are basically unified, the fact that you, yeah, and, and the fact that you can like have supervisors veto all these housing projects is just really dysfunctional. And so San Francisco is screwed, 
it has no ethos. Everyone's a giant hypocrite. People just ban straws. People, you know, like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this up soon. I've been meaning to write this up. Uh, you know, land acknowledgements have become this big thing where everyone says we are on the Ramaytu Shaloni land, um, and we are. There's like a, a there is a Ramaytu Shaloni. Uh, it's a for those who don't know, that's a Native American tribe. Uh, there is a Ramaytu Shaloni like organization. There's like a few guys. They're not. It's not like you know a big a big nation or whatever. But it's 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 there. Um, there is no one has any proposal to do what Vancouver did and actually allow the Ramaytu Shaloni to develop part of the land as they see fit. Because of course, what they're going to do is put up tons of housing and you know start collecting and another development and, and start collecting rent. So no, but so no one is going to actually give the land back. So it's this this pointless posturing. Um, that's very typical of San Francisco. We, we banned straws, uh, you know, but then meanwhile, just the amount of waste being generated in San Francisco is ridiculous. So yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic about this place. I wonder if, um, giving big city land back to native Americans would be a, in general, would that work out to be Yimby? You'd think it might, right? Like oh, yeah. Probably oh, don't, yeah. They, don't, they don't want to live there. Like, you know, they have, um, they would live in their tribal areas and some of them. No, might, no, like, no, 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 no. Uh, many so people, would like, and like, we're not talking, we're not talking about people like on, on reservations. Here. We're talking about, you know, people with, with a heritage who would like to, do you know about the, uh, the, I don't even know how to pronounce it because I've only read it, but the uh, Sanaka development in Vancouver. Do you know about this one? Yeah, a little bit. They like handed back a big piece of land, right? But are those in the middle of Vancouver. Yeah, but that was that that was not handed back to like a, to a tribe that was living on a Canadian reservation that was just handed back. To no, yeah, who just like trace their heritage, basically. Um, and so those, yeah, and then, and and essentially they handed over valuable parcel of land and said you can develop this as much as you want. And then they, you know, they started building this. Uh, they, they designed this development that really looks a bit like you know Taipei slash Singapore. You know, one of these these cities that tries to do like the steampunk sort of ethos. And then, but you know, it was very imaginative and it's just extremely dense like you know housing and and commercial stuff around because not only do you collect rents but you can also live there in the middle of the city these are people who who you know want to be integrated in canadian society while maintaining a sense of distinctiveness and yeah so read more about that it's it's a really cool project and i bet that we'd have very similar stuff if we did it in america no one has broached it it's time for me to start talking about it but i don't think people are really going to do it it's great i love it you should make you should make that a thing for sure yes Land back let's, is the practice of EMB Georgia's. Anyway, let's talk about immigration a little bit. Um, let's do it because that was what that was what I promised. <laughs> right. Um, I noticed. Uh, I, I think maybe it was Michael Clemens is when I showed up, like thinking I would be talking about immigration, found me talking about anime, and then left. And so that's very. I know. I saw that too. We ruined our, <laughs> oh, well. we ruined our shot. All right, well, so he, he could have learned about anime. All right, so what, what are we talking about? <laughs> let's go super granular and just sort of like inside baseball stuff. What's your favorite immigration study? Do you have one? Oh, my like favorite one that really weighs on you. Yeah. Um, my favorite immigration study is uh, Perry Sheehan's Barber. Yeah, that's just the best. Um, you know, and that's the study for people who don't automatically know Perry Sheehan's Barber. Um, that is the study that shows that high-skilled immigrants raise wages for high-skilled Native people. Of course, we always know they raise wages for low-skilled Native people. The high-skilled immigrants raise wages for high-skilled Native people in the areas they move to. So if you have, if you grant a bunch, if you like have an H-1B expansion or something like that, and it happens to give a lot of H-1Bs to companies that are in Denver, you can expect to see the wages of, you know, American born, you know, software engineers in Denver go up. And that's an amazing fact because you just, everyone thinks of immigration in terms of competition. And, you know, even if, you know, maybe they think, oh, you know, it's, um, 
Maybe it's good overall. Maybe immigration can raise wages overall. But for the people who you think about as being in direct competition with immigrants, those people's wages are going to go down, must go down. It's just like it's been drilled into their heads. It's just this thing they think they automatically just know. And it's not true at all. Because, and this was sort of the first big study to find this, and a number of other studies have found similar things. Because what happened, and basically our best, you know, there's a lot of things that could be happening, but our best guess as to what is happening is that essentially when you have a whole bunch of high-skilled immigrants move to an area, it becomes a place where companies know they can find a lot of, of high-skilled labor, and then they start choosing that place to invest in. You build your your you know Google office or whatever in Denver instead of in Phoenix, instead of in Dallas, instead of wherever else you were thinking of building it. And so then Denver gets more jobs, and those jobs tend to employ the same type of people as the as the high-skilled immigrants themselves. And so you have this investment benefit. And then you say, okay, well, that's true at the local level. It couldn't be true at the whole national level. Obviously, nationally, if you get high-skilled immigrants, they would compete and drive down the wages of, of native-born American people who have those same skills. Well, you know, that could happen, but probably not because companies are multinational and deciding where to invest is a multinational decision. And in the also, in addition to that, there's there's sort of these spillovers with starting startups. And so when you have high-skilled immigrants come in, more people who would have just invested in like, you know, I don't know, mini golf uh, chains will say, okay, I'm going to go into the, uh, into the software business instead because there's all these like engineers around and it's this resource I can take advantage of. And so then you create more jobs that way and that pushes up wages and blah, blah, blah. And so it's amazing the clustering, the effect of industrial clustering, you know, and, and agglomeration and stuff like that really just turns the this typical logic of immigration on its head and says that even if you are one of the people who seem to be directly competing with the high-skilled immigrants, you actually stand to benefit simply because investment will increase. Uh, so that's my favorite immigration study because it's just, it turns so much on its head. And yet once you, once you realize it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. You can't have a computer industry without computer people. And so you get more computer people and then you have a computer industry and then, and then they hire more computer people. And so when you say it that way, it sounds really obvious, but to everyone who's used to thinking of immigration as this direct competition, it's just not obvious. It has what I, what I tend to like in immigration studies, which is that very good sort of in, internal validity. And I actually think that that's often more important, at least from like a bigger picture, how do we understand immigration standpoint than having external validity? Because like, it's very hard to like, I, I don't really have a ton of faith in the sort of national skill share approaches that are like, we're going to do the big, big look at the nationwide, what are the effects of immigration? I think that's really hard to do credibly. I mean, like, I think at the original Borjas paper on that, they had like 165 data points or something like that. Like how much faith are you actually putting on that identification of those cross elasticities? And so like these, and if you look at the National Academy study, like where they try to like do a big, huge top-down look at the fiscal impact, like that's also Mm. very like, it's so, so broad that it's like these impacts that they're kind of hard to believe that you're ever going to be able to get super credible estimates of them. So I like the tight internal validity studies because I think what most people need to hear is that like, the possibility that it can happen, that it that you can have sort of Ricardian or Smithian effects or like the man channel effects or agglomeration effects that make it like a win-win. Because I think well, that like when you tell people options. it can we, be- not Ricardian. These, these turn Ricardian logic on its head. Ricardian logic says that when you get high-skilled immigrants who do like software, you then get a, you get a, the, then people who do software who directly compete with those people would be hurt. But people who do like, you know, people who do like construction work or whatever, or doctors or whatever would be helped enough that it would more than balance out. That's the Ricardian logic. And so this is more, I don't know, Marshallian, I guess, because Marshall talked about these, these externalities first. But 
to my knowledge. And the, this turns Ricardian logic on its head. It's not about trade between people doing different things. It's about people. It's about increasing returns. It's it's sort of like you know in trade theory you had Ricardian trade theory which says okay you you make the cars and you know I'll make the the stuffed animals, and then we'll trade. And then, you know, Krugman comes in and he turns that logic on his head and he's like, actually, no, all the rich countries make different kinds of cars and sell them to each other. And that's that's the logic of increasing returns, which is not present in Ricardo. And that's what this really shows. And that's why I think it's cool. Sorry. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think this study is an example of um, the, the Ricardo me- mechanism, but like other sort of high internal validity studies that show these other channels through which everyone can benefit. Like my favorite study is um, Perry and Fogad, which is the study in Denmark where they used, it was like, they had like a national scheme for refugee assignment. Right. They just and, randomly, it was almost random assignment of refugees to these. Yeah, it was, as far as like sending people around, it was as random as you can get. It was very highly random. And also, you know, Denmark is able to track everybody um, on their lifetime, uh, you know, through tax return data. They have good tax return data to track lifetime income. So they, it wasn't just about examining the effects on places. Because, you know, one of the obvious um, criticisms of place-based estimates is that you, like, have movers and you miss that effect. So this tra- tracked actual people, lifetime income effects. And this is what I would call Ricardian because this was focused on low-skilled refugees and what they did to low-skilled um, Native people. And they found that they sort of moved out of manure and they benefited from it. And so it was, like, specializing in, right. you know, right. comparative comparative advantage. So I like that, the right. that studies. Is, that is definitely a Ricardian thing. It's like you get, yeah, you get, you know, uh, foreign people coming in to do... Uh, you know, construction work and landscaping and stuff like that. And then the the native born people who are like into construction work and landscaping will move up into like managing construction landscaping, basically. Exactly. And, you know, there are other examples of this, like the, the study of Russians emigrating to Israel. There's a lot of Ricardian effects in there, Smithian effects too. And so like, I think these studies are important because like, you really just got to get people out of that simple labor supply shift model. It's just, right. and these aren't like, these aren't like, abstruse theories like these are older than like you know than the um modern labor economics so like these are it's not like i don't find it to be very tendentious it's just like this is natural these are big old economics ideas you just have to think a little different right i think i'm gonna just go outside you know every day i uh I imagine dressing in a silly costume, running out in the streets of San Francisco and screaming some, you know, economics fact at passersby. This is like, someday I'm really going to do it. But then I always just imagine doing it. And so I think definitely, you know, immigration is also a demand shock. Labor demand yeah. shock is going to be one of the main things I yell when I finally snap, you know, when they finally, when they finally like cut off my internet and I have nothing to do except, except, you know, I tweet on the street by running, <laughs> by running down the street screaming, immigration is a labor demand shock. <laughs> crazy guys on the streets the original tweeters for sure exactly and then now we put them in charge of our country right <laughs> so let me ask you about policy a little bit because i do know that you tend to write more about high-skilled immigration than low-skilled immigration um if you had the policy reins uh what, what would you do with immigration policy give us like two versions give us the like you can pass it in sort of a constitutional amendment sense. So like, you don't have to worry about sustainability. You just got to get it done and then it holds. And the other is like, okay, with, with real life political constraints in place, like what would you do? Well, see, that's, that's an interesting question because when you think about it, the, you know, the real life political constraint on immigration, there's things like, there's reasons to limit immigration locally. Like you can, you know, if you have NIMBYs, you can push up house prices. That's like actually, that's actually the worst thing about immigration economically is that it has this this NIMBY interaction. That when you have like a whole bunch of new people moving to a place, then 
and, and you have nimbyism and fragmented cities and all the other political things we have that make housing impossible to build, you actually do push up housing. Because immigration is a housing demand shock, but if you don't get a housing supply shock, then you really do get this problem with, with NIMBYs. And so that's actually the main economic counter argument to immigration. But you know, there, if I am I am I supreme dictator for life here? Am I like, you know, Xi Jinping? Can I just do whatever I like? Let's start there. Okay. Yes. So if I can just do if I can just do whatever I like, you know, we're gonna do uh, immigration as large as we can reasonably manage. You know, I don't want to say open borders. That's you know, because then maybe like there's some reason uh, that we can't do that immediately. But then that I would say that very large immigration flows and basically let people live in whatever country they want. And then that'll equilibrate in like a couple decades or something like that. And then, but I don't think, right. So th then that, that requires me to have control over a whole bunch of things, like how much housing we build and things like that. And then there's also the fact that you have, you know, in real life, you have political backlashes. You have people who say, who, who are like, well, all these people are moving to my neighborhood and they're so different and they eat these weird foods and it smells weird. And but, I mean, like I, in real life, I spend a lot of time thinking, oh my God, how do we deal with these people? In this case, do these people rebel against me as Supreme Dictator and kill me because the people, so many people who made weird smell and food move next to them, you know, like, and do they, do they hang me from a gas station and riddle my body with bullets? It's in real life. This is the constraint on immigration. It's the, the fact that people, you know, people only want a certain amount of, of new people, move, you know, moving into their culture. And because it really it's the, it's the question of, of a word that people really don't like, but which is a really important and, and subtle, meaningful word, which is assimilation. And if you read uh, Tomas Jimenez, he's been the guy who really wrote the book on what assimilation really means. Um, it's called The Other Side of uh, Assimilation, and everyone should read it. Really, if you have a, a society with, you know, a thousand people and like a hundred new people move in, then the society will change a bit in the direction of the hundred people. And then the hundred people will change a lot in the direction of that society. And that's the kind of assimilation we normally know. You know, it's like, uh, but then if you have a thousand people there and then 10,000 people move in, you know, then the 10,000 people won't change as much as the thousand people will change. So in other words, you get this proportional assimilation sort of thing, I, probably not linear, but the point is that uh, people do want to defend their cultures. You know, um, they, uh, I don't particularly care about it because, you know, my cultural background is like, you know, culturally as like, a Jewish guy who liked anime and stuff like that. Like I'm in the cultural minority. Like the stuff I like is like, I'm not actually that huge an anime fan, but I, I like, you know, punk rock and, uh, you know, indie movies and, and other stuff that was almost defined by the fact that it was minority culture. And so I never felt threatened. This is probably ultimately why I'm so pro-immigration is that culturally I've never felt like I was, like I was a member of this dominant cultural majority who got threatened by people moving in. But then people do, and I can't deny that they do, and I can yell at them for it, but it's not going to make a difference. They they feel this, and so you know, if you in real life, the political limitations that people who are even pretty accepting of immigration at moderate levels, at a high level, they'll feel like they're just suddenly moved to they move to a foreign country, and so um, and that can be true at the local level, can be true at the national level. Uh, you know, if America, if we had one billion Americans tomorrow you know, then, then the 330 million Americans who were here before will be like, where the hell do I live now? What is this country? Um, and even the people who move there may find that it's, you know, that there's a, there's a sort of externality, cultural externality, and they didn't get to move to the culturally, the place that they thought they're moving to. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't just yell at the people who are like, I want to preserve my culture and say, you're all racist. Cause you know, of course, a lot of them are racist. A lot of people in the world are racist. Um, but I don't think that's the only thing going on there. And I think that you do get this sort of sense of like, you know, my culture disappeared if immigration, if local immigration goes too fast, and that's the political constraint. I don't know what to do about that. I'm sort of torn on this topic. Yeah. 
I don't know if there's anything like, that can be done. It's just it's political reality. Well, I think you know, I share the agreement with you that um, it is it is possible for people to say here's what our local culture is, and that like thus we are allowed to support policies that do something towards preserving that. So like I share that theoretical embrace of that with you that I think a lot of a lot of progressives would reject that and or a lot of immigration advocates. So I'm with you there, but I but like I'm torn because I actually don't think that that has a lot to do with it. If you look at like the political science literature on this question, like people are mostly concerned about what you call like sociotropic concerns, which is how does immigration affect my nation? And right. there's not really a strong relationship between like locally what's happening and what people feel about immigration. And if you right. look at like what parts of the country were most strongly went for Trump and were like most thing of like you know that sort of anti-immigration rhetoric, I guess it places with like no immigrants. Like there are not a lot of immigrants in West Virginia. And like there but are why? I mean, like, in San Francisco. So there's there's a couple things going on there. There's the contact hypothesis, right? There's the contact effect where if you live in a place with lots of immigrants, you get used to it. And you're like, I like this. This is fine. I live in New York. It's all these foreigners. That's great. Foreigners. Awesome. Let's get more. That's a real thing. And then, you know, West Virginia, like, you know, you don't see immigrants. So you don't get used to that. That's an, basically why the this sort of nation of immigrants thing has this momentum effect where if you just get used to living around a bunch of immigrants then you're more pro-immigration but also if there's a selection effect where like if you're one of the people who likes living around a, a whole bunch of people from other places you move to new york you move out of west virginia you move to new york right and so then there's you know and and then places that are more welcoming and have a more welcoming and open local culture are going to get more immigrants over time. And then those will be the places with the higher immigrant shares. And those places probably retain a lot of their, their culture and of opening welcomeness. While the places, the cultures that are, you know, xenophobic and closed probably don't get many immigrants over time and they retain their culture of xenophobic closedness. And so that's why that acts another reason. So these are two reasons. There's a, you know, selection effect and like contact. The real tragedy of this, though, is that I think a lot of those places that perceive themselves as having like a culture that's under assault, that a culture that they want to preserve, a way of life, they're the places that are being decimated by population loss. And like, that's Absolutely. what, like, if you talk about the heartland and like West Virginia and places like that, like, what's the biggest threat to their culture? What's the biggest threat to their way of life? What's like, you know, gutting their communities? It's loss of population. It's not immigration. And that's the unfortunate part. Absolutely. The places that economically need immigration most are like, you know, inevitably the places that, you know, uh, culturally want immigration the least. And this is, you know, at some point I can, you, you say, there's not much I can do for you. You know, you're like, this is the situation with like anti-vaxxers. We fax like 80% of adults, the rest of the 20% are going around saying, you know, the vaccine is killing people. It's a government plot, blah, blah, blah. And of course there's not, ultimately there's not much we can do for it. Okay, fine. You're going to get a plague. I hope you live. You know, there's just, communities that are that are dying because everyone's moving out but who refuse to take in new people are gonna die you're gonna your community is yeah. is doomed. you're a ghost town put up some cardboard storefronts because like that's your future you know yeah. people in like west virginia and maybe you can all you know get jobs as like fake trumpers you know shilling for it. never mind sorry that's just a, a dig at uh jenny vance um so so then yeah like you no one's going to help these communities and these communities are going to die and they could take immigrants. We should, we need to talk to these people and say, well, guys, you need to take some immigrants. They're among the, you know, dozens, like about 35 immigration books that I read uh, preparing to write a book on immigration that I never ended up writing because I realized it was just a culture war issue and no one cared about the economics of it. You know, I, I read all this book and a couple of the books I read were really interesting stuff about how some towns in the Midwest 
have been very welcoming to immigrants and some towns in the, in the Midwest have been yeah. strongly resistant to immigrants coming in. And the ones that have been welcoming have economically flourished while the ones that were resistant are economically declining. But it's a self-reinforcing cycle where once you let in some immigrants and, and in practice, these are like almost entirely Hispanic immigrants that are being let into these towns, uh, you know, working class folks, um, not too different from the working class, you know, European folks. These, these are heavily white places. And these are not too different from the working class European folks that moved there before to like work in the, you know, in the mills and the fields and the, you know, plants and all the whatever meat packing, I don't know. And so then, but the, the, the towns in like Iowa and, you know, I don't know, Illinois, rural Illinois or like Nebraska or wherever, they're getting these influxes of mostly Hispanic immigrants are doing really well. And yeah, there were some like, there were some cultural assimilation challenges, you know, like people, in the um in the schools had to like think about spanish oh my god you have to learn a few words of spanish man i'm from texas everyone has to know spanish right. <laughs> like so to, to a texan the fact that you know now a quarter of your town uh is originally from mexico or central america that's just called texas we live right. with that forever that's nothing to us that's not immigration to us that's just normal that's just Wednesday. Right. All of America. Right. My ancestors came over from Germany to escape Bismarck and made some farms and, and killed Native Americans. And now this is our place that we've lived on since we did that. And like those people are like, oh my God, 25% of my of my town is now is now Spanish speaking. And uh, you know, but, but but they deal with it. They deal with it really well. It's like get used to it. it. And, you know, and of course the towns really try to help, you know, the, the mayors and the city councils and whatever have like cultural days celebrating the culture of the newcomers and blah, blah. And they, they really try to like accommodate these newcomers and, you know, um, and people grumble and complain. There's like a few like aggressively racist people who are just like yell about it. And I was like, we need to take America back. And then, um, and I, I just remember from one of these books I was reading, and this book this book is reasonably old. It's from the early 2000s. And I remember they were they had all these long-form interviews because as good sociologists, they have to supplement their their quantitative data with all these long-form interviews. And one guy says, he's like a guy who runs like a like a trucking local, like like local trucking company or something like that. He's like, he says about Hispanic immigration influx, he says um something like you know, there's a few guys around who go really hard and they're like, take America back. And he's like, I think there's only a few of those guys. That was the most amazing quote. Just thinking about these few angry guys who are saying, take right. America back, kick out these weirdos. And, and ultimately, it's just a few guys. And I think that ultimately, when the stupid, you know, critical race theory, culture wars and all this crap are over and, uh, you know, one way or another, and, you know, we move on to like all just like dancing to disco or whatever we do. And when all these culture wars are over, you know, the, the Trumpers who were like, take America back. These immigrants aren't real Americans. Kick them all out. Burr, burr, my ancestors built this civilization. And they're, they're just going to be a few guys. Because ultimately, Americans aren't really like that. Americans are, get, we're very stupid and, you know, upset over stuff we see on national politics. And we shout at our televisions. And now we shout at the internet. And then our neighbors we get along with. Most of Americans find ways to get along with our neighbors while shouting at the TV. That's who we are. I, and I think places that you talk about the Midwest that have welcomed immigrants are are, the, are great examples of that. I think that uh, Texas is another great example. Like there, these are not you know this is not like a lot a lot of immigration critics want to paint like immigration is like being you know something that's you know abnormal to the American experience. But like like you said, that's Texas. This is the story of Texas. Right. And I think that that you know this is one of the things I like about Heartland visas, which is something we we both obviously talked and written about um, proposal I put out with. John Latiri and Kenneth Fee Graves, the Economic Innovation Group, like 
you know, there are places that are losing population that want more immigrants. And like, even though when we talk about correlates, like, yes, you know, um, economically struggling places are places that are um, disproportionately unfriendly to immigration. It's those are correlates. It's not everybody. And there are communities right. that would welcome more. And, you know, you talk about some of the um, cultural adjustments and the, and the you know, the, the growing pains that come with low skilled immigration to these places. I think those would be even further mitigating this. The benefits would be higher if this was high skilled immigration that we allowed more of them to come to the places that are welcoming to them. And my hope is that they would sort of, you know, help spread the idea of immigration as economic development. And, you know, most people, even people who are like opposed to immigration are more supportive of high skilled immigration. So I do think that like, you know, we should consider that in our, in our policy choices. Right. I think so too. Uh, can you still hear me by the way? Yes. Okay, good. I think so too. I think that to be honest, I think that a lot of the support for high skill differential support for high skilled immigration is bullshit. I, I don't believe those polls. I think that like, that the people who are likely to say, well, I I would live next to a high-skilled immigrant, but not a low-skilled immigrant, are just looking for an excuse to like choke off what they see as low-skilled immigration, or they're they're looking for a reason to feel good about their restrictionism, you know? And so they're, and they think that like, oh, if I just don't want foreigners, that's bad, because then I'm a xenophobe, but what if I only want high-skilled foreigners, and they come up with this economic rationale? Uh, there is an economic rationale for taking high-skilled immigrants over low-skilled, because it, you know, it draws more investment, it's better for growth, and it's better for inequality as well, because it really pumps up the, the wages of, of low-skilled people a lot. Uh, so there, there is a really good economic case for it. I don't think most people are thinking about that economic case, to be perfectly honest. I think people are, you know, because the Republicans have been out there sort of disingenuously claiming that they want to boost, they want to boost skilled immigration. And if you look at their proposals, what they really want to do is like cut total immigration by like 50% and then raise high-skilled immigration by like a little bit. And then like, right. so they, they don't, they really just want to choke off numbers. And so um, I think that a lot of the people, that's why I don't, I don't trust those polls. There is a good economic rationale for privileging high skilled immigration. And I don't think people are really have that rationale in mind. But I, I mean, I do. I'm yeah. Sorry, go Let's ahead. talk about the Heartland Visa program, because this is really, you know, economically, this is a, this is a very good program that I think there, you know, we have declining regions. And essentially, if you can nudge people, it doesn't, and it doesn't force people into declining right. regions. It nudges people into to declining regions. Um, and so those nudges can be effective. And those nudges can, can resuscitate a local area. And I think we've seen it in a lot of places. It's not necessarily, this revitalization effort doesn't just require high-skilled immigration. So in fact, I think that place-based visas could even work for lower-skilled immigrants as well. I think that there's going to be a lot of cultural resistance. You know, you've put the pilot program, you know, Biden's putting forth the pilot program. So, you, you know, you guys very successfully got the national level politicians to, um, you got the national politician level politicians, like consider this idea, but then getting it in terms of like getting to Canada where this stuff is just like accepted and normal is going to be harder because there's a couple of reasons why people resist. One reason is that it, it sort of instinctively seems to trample on the freedom of movement. And the freedom of movement is like the psychological idea, like people imagine if I could only live in one city. And of course, no, you can actually can move, but just the, the connotation, the idea that you can only live in this one place scares people. Um, so that's one problem. Another problem is that this woman, uh, and I forget who she is because I blocked her. She was extremely like angry and aggressive. She somehow like got me to DM her. So I was in this DM with her and then she started yelling at me about Heartland visas. Just like, <laughs> and she was so... She was so passionate and not very coherent that it took me a while to realize that, that she was at what she was actually talking about. It took me a very long while, but she said, why are you gonna make 
me and people like me, you know, uh, live in, you know, these towns with these rednecks. You know, she was very, like, very, like, you know, angry about, like, living near the rednecks. Um, and she said, why are you going to make me live there? I'd rather, you know, live on the coast uh, where, you know, I can live with, with progressives and stuff like that. And so there's this cultural thing where, where even if, in fact, these towns are quite nice and welcoming and like, try small town America, you'd like it, you know, actually is right a lot of the time. But the problem is that people think that they're going to like this, this sort of hellish place where they're going to be bullied and, and, you know, beaten up and shot and killed or whatever. And so these negative stereotypes about these places. And well, to be honest, most places don't deserve those stereotypes. And there are some that do. So, I mean, the way the program that we put forward is designed to deal with these concerns is, um, and I, you know, I think that would be obviously a concern if like this was the, if, if this was the only door to immigration and we were just like randomly assigning people. Yeah. I think you would definitely have those problems, but it, it's designed to be dual opt-in, which means that the local place has to designate itself. Um, you know, democratic yeah. means and right. also yeah. the, the immigrants have to choose it. And we are, you know, every single person that we talk to, every single politician, every single think tank person, we insist this has to be a new door. This can't be, this can't be an alternative to H-1B. So to that woman right, in your right, DMs, right. I'd say, great, go get an H-1B, go go there. But right. I, I do think that exactly. there is, you know, we did get it on, like you said, the Biden administration supported it. So did um, Pete, uh, Mayor Pete Bloomberg's campaign. So we did have that success at the national right. level. But right. at, the local, at the local level, we've been, the plan has been endorsed by the U.S. Council of Mayors. And like, um, I don't know if Latiri's in the audience, but he could run you down a list of yes. like mayors and county yeah, politicians and people. Done. He's already done that. Okay. And yeah, you're right. And so you're doing it right. And so I think it's good. I'm just explaining why I think that resistance right. is, going to, is going to continue to more fierce than it ought to be to this, this yeah. smart but wonky proposal. It requires finessing in order to work and be a thing that everyone's really happy about. Not everyone in Canada likes this either. There are people, and of course, Canada places actually greater restrictions movement than your plan would. Um, Canada places harder restrictions on movement than your plan would. And so, but, but there's, there's definitely people, when you read online, there's people complaining pretty hardcore about Canada's uh, program. And so there's, there's not, you're not going to satisfy everybody. And right. I, I'm just trying to say why I think that the, the idea is, a very, is one of these wonky ideas that when you finesse it and when you get the details right, really works well. But that when you just do the soundbite version of it, sort of gets people's back up, you know, and it did, it did mine too. You know, when I, before I knew some of these details and before I'd, I really read deeply about how the Canadian program works. I was also, you know, fairly, uh, you know, skeptical. I was very skeptical. I was very much like, it, will this, will this turn us into like a, a papers please sort of, you know, Soviet Union kind of thing where restricted movement. And then I realized that it wouldn't. Um, but that so it was a hard sell for me and it's going to be a hard sell for other people too, I think. Yeah, I hundred percent percent respect that. You know, that you gotta, you should never go and do an immigration policy of any kind, assuming that it's going to be an easy sell for sure. I think you're, there's going to be people raising all the concerns you raised. And I gotta um, say, I want, I'm, I'm pessimistic about immigration. I'm very pessimistic about immigration policy in America and the near future of immigration policy because I think we've turned it into culture war. You know, we've we're, it's almost the new it's the new abortion. Although abortion itself may be making a comeback, but I feel like immigration has turned into this sort of implacable point of opposition where the Republicans, to be a Republican, you have to have a litmus test of saying immigration is bad. And then like to be a Democrat, you have to have a litmus test of saying immigration is good. And so no one actually thinks about what kind of immigration is good, policy is optimal, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we don't necessarily do any immigration policy. So you'll notice that with the abortion culture war, very little actual policy was made on either side. Right. 
you know, very there there were some some red states that restricted abortion and you know still do. And but very little was done. Of course, that's also because it was blocked by the judiciary. You can't really do much when the Supreme Court is like you have to allow abortion. But there was little movement, and it espoused it, it aroused. I mean, all these passions on both sides for so long, even though there was so little policy movement. And so I think with immigration, we might get that. And I feel like we're headed and because this this what we call this great replacement theory has completely dominate come to dominate the minds of not just Trumpists, not just, you know, these go-hard xenophobes, but also the average Republican, the average Republican who doesn't even even a Republican who doesn't even care about immigration on like cultural things or you know, doesn't care about, you know, like keeping America where all this bullshit may think, well, immigrants and their kids are more likely to vote for the Democrats. And that's bad because Democrats are bad. And like, if there's one thing all Republicans believe, it's that Democrats are bad. That's why you call yourself a Republican in the first place. And so even for people who don't buy the, the racial or cultural replacement, great replacement theories, they're going to buy this political replacement theory. And so there's maybe if this, you know, we saw this small, modest, like Hispanic shift for Republicans in the last election that looks to be continuing now. Maybe if that really proceeds and like, you know, Hispanic immigrants get this stereotype of like being 50-50, or even if they lean Republican, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, but even if it did, you know, that that doesn't that maybe that could would like make Republicans think, OK, well, you know, these folks are going to vote Republicans. We can let these folks in. And then they so Republicans, you know, they might they might be like, OK, well, let's let in some immigrants from like you know, Poland or somewhere that they would have opposed 100, bitterly 100 years ago, because right. like, okay, those people vote Republican. Uh, that your ancestors, and I think some of mine as well. Um, but then, uh, but then, so, so, you know, they bitterly opposed, opposed us 100 years ago, but then now they'd be like, okay, well, maybe we'll let those people in long after the wave is over. But then whatever the new places that people want to move from, like Indonesia or somewhere, they'll be like, well, we can't have the Indonesians, they vote for the Democrats. And you see, it's, it's ridiculous how much this echoes the early days of the, of the union when essentially the Federalists and then the Whigs all just completely freaked out over immigration. They, they wigged out, if you will, um, over immigration because the Irish immigrants voted so strongly for the Democratic Party. And, you know, partisanship was used very intense even at that time. And they were like, well, you're just importing votes. We're, you're going to destroy democracy because, you know, you can just like Democrats, whenever they want to win elections, can just import more Irish people. And that's right. what you do. And, that, and then like, it's it was the same damn thing, and so of course they and then they tried really hard to stop immigration, and then um, they failed, and then the the Whigs eventually started immigrants. Well, then the Civil War sort of happened and interrupted everything and distracted Americans, uh, because ultimately Americans care much more about the uh, you know racial conflicts, uh, you know the the black white conflict especially than they do about immigration. Ultimately, that's our real dividing line, whereas immigration is just this thing that pops up occasionally. And, you know, we see these like bursts of, of restriction of sentiment. Unfortunately, I think immigration has turned into this culture war and that in itself is going to restrict immigration no matter what we do with policy because America will go from having this, this reputation of like this land of freedom where anyone can move, which is how people really thought of it in the 80s, 90s and, and 2000s, right? It was this, uh, everything from like Reagan to Obama Reagan was insanely pro-immigration. He just constantly talked about how awesome immigrants were. Maybe he just wanted like cheap labor and whatnot, but like he constantly talked about how great immigrants were. Um, right, and whatever then, the reason, those were the days. Those were the days. You know, he, there's this insane like debate. I mean, insanely great debate between him and George Bush in like the 1980 primary where he's like yelling at Bush for not being favorable enough to Mexican immigration. He's like, you're not letting up. And George Bush is like, yeah, of course I want to 
you know, George Bush, H.W. Bush, right? Old Bush is like, he's like, oh, you know, of course I want immigrants from Mexico. You know, don't don't say that. Of course I do. He's like, no, you not enough. He says Reagan and That's just like great. goes after him. And then, I'd love to see that today. That would be awesome. I know. It's, it's, it's going to be a while. Because one thing I learned from reading all this, you know, copious history of our immigration thing is that is that confidence, self-confidence is what gets America to embrace immigration. And that's going to be an annoying thing for everyone in the econ world to hear because we don't know how to measure that well. Uh, you know, we can uh, we can take polls about like direction of the country or whatever, but it's hard to measure our self-confidence when Americans feel like they that they know what America is about, that America is great, that America is on the up and up, all this stuff like that. They open the doors to immigration. And this is true even in a time of jingoistic nationalism like the uh, you know 1890s and 1910s. Like for for a while, we opened ourselves to immigration, even though every you know that was like when racism was the most popular it's been in our country. You know, it was sort of almost the defining one of the defining sort of uh, uh, motifs of the new nationalism was this virulent racism, and yet we were so confident that people didn't start to freak out about immigration until like the 1910s, really. Um, so in like the 1890s, saw co- this this confidence created this this policy opening for this burst of immigration that allowed our ancestors to come here, and that uh, is the reason I'm standing here today. And so, of course, you know, the, the, I, I would say that our, our nationalism was was much much less you know, uh, less based on, on things like racism by the time we got to the 80s. Uh, but obviously, for some people, it still was. But then in the 80s and 90s, we, uh, you know, we were much, we were very confident. We had, you know, sort of won the Cold War. That gave us extreme confidence. In the 90s, our economy boomed. You know, we were the economic leader of the world. And that, I think that confidence gave us the space for 25 years of, of really good immigration policy. And now that confidence is gone. We don't know who we are anymore. We have this, you know, culture wars were always there, obviously, but then they've become just bitter to the point of like everyone just going on Twitter and talking up civil war. I doubt they'll actually do it, maybe, but like everyone talks about it and thinks about it now. And so we're, and everyone thinks the country's in the wrong track and, you know, we can like crush COVID with vaccines and blah, 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 but people don't, you know, I'm trying to make people a little more optimistic about our actual, about America's actual capabilities because we're actually doing reasonably well at a lot of these things. We're, we're doing badly at some things, but but the, the motif that like America is this dysfunctional, fallen, dying place, blah, 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 has taken hold so strongly on both the left and the right. Left declinism is probably nothing new because we had that in the 70s. Right declinism is is new. You know, basically there's a lot of people who think this isn't America anymore and who essentially want to, who, who, who anyway, right, declinists on the right are now hugely uh, prominent and might even be more like despairing than declinists on the left. And when you have this unconfident country that has no idea who it is or what it is or what it's about, you're not going to get strong support for immigration, I think. And so we're left with trying to do elite things when the mob doesn't notice. You know, we're left trying to like appeal to the good graces of people like, uh, you know, Joe Biden's administration to say, okay, let's, let's do these wonky things. Let's, let's make some heartland visas and stuff like that. And get, let's, let's recapture green cards. Let's expand the O1. Let's, uh, you know, do cap exemptions, things like that that do increase immigration modestly and that, you know, and that are, are economically good. That's basically our, our play right now. We're, we've got to sort of do it in the shadows because America as a whole is not going to embrace big, large scale immigration because we're not confident as a people, as a nation. I want to bring in some some questioners here and see if anybody has anything they want to chat with you about. Let's uh, have sure. the, the Omnizadi. The Omnizadi. Uh, uh, what do you All got right. Hey, what's up? Hello. Um, what's up, man? <laughs> hey, Noah. 
been a hot second. It's been so wild because uh, we've just gone through so many of these topics and I don't even know which one to comment on. But uh, the one that stuck out to me was um, you talking about the Substack. You know, this is like such a throwback to about 30 minutes ago. But talking about the Substack and the business model and how you sustain yourself as, you know, sort of like a freelance writer these days and the need to not, the lack of need to like create a brand essentially for yourself. I can't help but think about just how much of politics has become branded recently, you know, and I know you don't get too much into this kind of boring stuff, but you know, all the political streamer drama is, is just, I don't know how much you get involved in that, but do you see this kind of issue with how, you know, we talk about how politics has become an aesthetic and like, how much do you think it's, this is like, has this been exacerbated in some way by technology, by the internet, or is this just sort of a reflection of broader trends that's been continuing even like before, before all of our technological revolution and stuff? Wait, so what's the question? Sorry. Like, is the whole politics as aesthetic, you know, the Bruno politics and how we, you know, sort of attach ourselves to brands of politics rather than specific prescriptions of policy? Oh. Is this sort of, yeah, is it like, is this sort of like an internet phenomenon or is this like really just a phenomenon that kind of got um, really boosted by internet or just being thrust more into the spotlight, so to speak? No, no, that's how, pol that's how politics has always been. Politics has always been, you know, culture war grandstanding and like our tribe versus their tribe and blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, I don't know, I want to say it's deeply ingrained in human nature. Maybe it's just some sort of game theoretic equilibrium given media technologies and, and whatever. I don't know what it is, but no, that's if, if you know, go read about, read a million things about the pre-revolutionary France and like the French revolutionary period, and then read stuff about like the revolutions of 1848 and things like that. And then you realize, oh, this is the same. Were, um, politics, were politics slightly less bad for like maybe a period of 30 years or something? And, and now we're back to like old normal history and that's making everyone if you don't know the normal history it seems like a decline but really it's just that we had a little bit of peace and calm there or do we not even have the peace and calm is that just uh sort of a you know an illusion made created by our uh you know being nostalgic for the recent past so in terms of um whether our, was our politics better like it didn't want to be you know the the stuff that people were saying and pushing in the 1990s was every bit as nutty as is now you know i like there were you know there was pat buchanan there was, you know, that, that was, the 90s was actually when people were the most anti-immigration in America, according to polls, that they've ever been. There was almost a bipartisan consensus that immigration, especially Mexican immigration, was like a bad thing. I'm astonished to find that now because at the time I didn't realize it, probably from living in Texas. But it was this extremely anti-immigration time. It was a time of crazy culture wars. Um, you know, everywhere we had, at that time, you know, the, the right was still, still felt that it was sort of on the up and up or, or that it was... Uh, you know, the, the, the Christian coalition was like on the march and, you know, there was, we, we all went to school board meetings and like argued about what curriculum to put in school, but it wasn't critical race theory. It was Christianity, it was creationism. So they were like right. the original, the original cancel culture, the original, well, not even, not even the original. What, what would be the original? I don't know. You have to go back to like, er, or something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. The Roman, the Romans, the Romans the, it was the rostrum. The rostrum is the cancellation. It's you write someone's name on the rostrum and then anyone is allowed to go kill them anywhere. You don't actually have police. Right. You just, you just have proscription. You just, you just write someone's name on this whiteboard and then like, go at them, kill them if you find them. And that's how Cicero died. Right. And they couldn't even have, they couldn't even substack that. They couldn't even substack. Even Cicero couldn't option. open his substack um, and like, you know, get an art audience and like, you know, but like, well, let me push on. back on the one that, because we had Pat Buchanan, but he wasn't president. No, I'm saying, no, I'm, so what I'm like, saying is these tendencies, these movements were all right, there. They just, just didn't take over. There was no sensible center that like, there was no sort of like army of militant centrists that fought off both sides. That's a fantasy that never happens. Centrists never win that way. If there's ever an army of like, an army of centrists that comes and just beats the hell out of like both warring sides, it's a foreign army. 
right? FDR was essentially the the centrist army that that you know beat up both the European right and left. Um, but you know because it wasn't you know because he was out an outsider. You know we were we were outsiders to that conflict. And so that idea that like maybe if all the centrists just get together and and you know fight off both sides, it never happens. Um, that's a strong opinion, and I'm I'm not necessarily like. I can't give you like ironclad political science proof, but you know, go ask a go ask a historian and ask a political scientist and blah blah blah. You occasionally have things like the Thermidorian reaction, where you get like some centrists in power. But what you always really just get centrists win when the warriors on the opposite sides get exhausted, and when that's that's bleak. That is really bleak because people have so much energy today, and or get exhausted or get redirected. So if you have some sort of like frontier, you know. This metaphor of the American frontier is powerful, so I'll use it, but it's not always that. Yeah. But if you have this, if you have some third thing that like both rightists and leftists can, or whatever the division is in those days, right and left, it could be something else. If they can all direct their 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 energy instead of fighting each other, they can direct it towards some other thing. So of course, in the old west, it was like colonizing the old west, right? And that's the frontier example that we're all taught and that you know, everyone knows. But there's other examples too, um, and the internet is a great example. So if you remember back in like. In the early 2000s, there were Nazis on the internet and there were Nazis in forums and, and stormfront.org was like one of the biggest web pages. It was like Nazis finding their people. And we saw the Nazis and most people, we were like, fuck Nazis. We, you know, we hate Nazis and if necessary, we'll kill Nazis. But, the, but it didn't seem like a threat. It wasn't like a big deal because there was so much space. The internet was this vast digital space to be lord built and colonized. <laughs> like, you know, it was this, um, everybody's there. Everybody's there. It was this frontier. And so I was much, you know, I knew there were Nazis on the internet, but I had no, I didn't think fighting Nazis was on the internet was something that deserved my time because instead I wanted to like create memes and find people who liked the same kind of like fashion stuff I did and read about other people's experience. And just, there was this massive flowering where suddenly you discovered what everyone else in the world was doing that we hadn't known before. And it was just this immense efflorescence of building and creativity and, and, you know, uh, constructiveness and and exploitation of unexploited things and so that was that was amazing and during that and now then you know you get to like the early 2010s and it's like the internet's been built out everyone's on a few platforms now it's time to fight some nazis and so the uh, the thing that had been absorbing our energies went away the the creation of the internet went away and instead it was all about um instead we we were like okay well now we've everything has calmed down in terms of the creation of the internet. Now there's all these goddamn Nazis around here. Let's fight them. And of course the Nazis were thinking like, <laughs> you know, let's, let's go find someone to bully and persecute um, as they do. And so, and that's what happened. So I think that exhaustion is what you saw in the seventies. So you saw, you know, right and left people had fought in the street just as much as they did in this era. It just wasn't covered as much because like when Gil Scott Heron said the revolution will not be televised, he was basically right television couldn't get out to where the, the street battles between rightists and leftists were happening. You have to like go read old books from like little newspaper who take archival sources from newspaper clippings to find out that this stuff is happening. Like the hard hat riot. The street. Have you ever heard of the hard hat riot? No, I was going to say like there were bombings too. Like that's another example. There were. Like, you, you know, thousands. Like thousands. Thousands of bombings. This is satirized in the movie Brazil where there's bombings and everyone just ignores it. Um, and so then, yeah, there were, there were like thousands, literally thousands of bombings a year in America. Most didn't kill anybody because people were just blowing stuff up for fun. You know, it was, there was no Twitter. You, Twitter was just like, you go grab some dynamite from a quarry, leave it in a bathroom overnight and blow up some corporate office. Like, ha ha ha, fuck the man. <laughs> and then like, that was what it was. And um, so all this stuff got memory hold because our media technology was just Stone Age at the time. Um, but it, look up, go look up one tiny little piece. Look up the hard hat riot. And like all these construction workers who were, you know, all white at the time, um, mostly anyway, uh, they just, they just rioted and started beating up anyone they thought was a hippie. 
And of course, if the newspaper reporter says that, it also, the, the implication is that they were probably beating up non-white people as well, or anyone who looked like, I don't know, Puerto Rican, whatever, they were in New York. And so, like, um, I think it was New York. I don't remember, actually. But I, New York. I'm, it was New York. Okay. I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Right. Yeah, so it's like, they said they were beating up hippies, and they probably were, but they were probably also beating up any minorities that they happened to come along. And so then, um, so that's just one of these tiny little things that gets memory hold. And, and so we're like, oh my God, the right used to be reasonable and now they're Nazis. And like, no, there were all these like, like pro-Vietnam demonstrations where people would just bring Nazi flags to the demonstrations. Like it, it, pro-Vietnam War. Like, you know, counter demonstrations, anti-hippie demonstrations where people would come and they would just bring Nazi flags. And then they would do these interviews with people. And this is in like um, Nixon land. It's in the Invisible Bridge. It's in Days of Rage. It's in a lot of these things. These books you can read. Um, it seemed like nothing really happened is another book. And so... In the, in the late 60s and 70s, people were bringing Nazi flags to stuff. And, you, and you know, they did, you do some interviews with people and they'd be like, well, I actually think, you know, this isn't popular to say, but Hitler was right about a lot of things. <laughs> you'd get, and like, it didn't feel like a Nazi takeover because no one was reporting on it. And of course, all the lefties, if you talk to anyone in like a, you know, a, um, in, in lefty spaces, they would say, yeah, like Nixon is the, is the new Hitler. We're going the way of Nazi Germany and Nixon is turning us into Nazi Germany. He's Hitler. Palpatine is Nixon. They, we made our whole like great you know, American fantasy franchise, the like defining, like modern, like fantasy world of America is Star Wars. It's all based on Richard Nixon being bad, right? Emperor, the evil emperor is Nixon and he's going to turn us into this fascist state. We're the Galactic Republic, blah, blah, blah. The Ewoks are the Viet Cong. And like, um, probably would be a little insulting to the Viet Cong if they knew the Ewoks were based on them. But, um, but yeah, so then that was, we don't think of that time as, as, as this crazy because the people at the top, because political culture was a little more insulated from populist fury that was happening. And you had these elites who were sort of making backroom deals and you had the Southern Democrats who were, you know, trying to balance between these two factions so they could like stay in power in the South or whatever. You had all these, these factors, but really in terms of the populist street energy, the 60s and 70s easily rivaled and maybe surpassed anything we've seen in the last 10 years. Well, it's true also of like the craziness of youth as well, because like what you're pointing out here is like people who are, for example, like think that like Trumpism is like the worst it's been. They're missing their history in the 60s and 70s. No, Trump like, is the worst. Like he's, a, he's the worst president we've ever had. And he really is right, a fascist like who politics. wanted to overthrow democracy. That's not even wrong. No, no, I'm, no Trump is. I'm not Trump. Yeah. So like the idea that like uh, that's not popular. New. Right. Yeah. So but the other um, thing sort of similar is like a lot of people look at kids these days and like kids have never been crazier. They're nuts. They're like <laughs> they're so strange. And but like my favorite piece of history, um, which is like my version, you've got like the hard hat rebellion, whatever. Mine is the uh, watching Grateful Dead concert videos like those are weird kids. Those are kids who are like not living in a sustainable culture, like are not a path to adulthood like that's a scary subculture to see rising our kids today are they're tame they're so tame compared to the hippies so i think that like oh, and if you look at the 60s and 70s um you know it should give us a little bit of optimism right. about our culture it was like just much you know it was much it was crazier it was not much crazier it was like moderately crazier at the street level but then because we had different media technology this is why i'm a technological supremacist ultimately you know i really think you know technology it changes the game we play the same games with different tech and um, and we're now just my model of of the 2020s is just the 1970s with the Internet this time. <laughs> and we, you've seen us replay so many of our things. Um, of course, you know, maybe Iraq was a replay of Vietnam. Maybe that's a coincidence. And the, the Great Recession may be a replay of the Great Depression. But then we've, you know, in terms of cultural arguments and stuff like that, we're replaying all of our greatest hits. And and if you look at the thing we call wokeness, there's relatively few ideas that weren't around in the 70s. 
in wokeness. 70s, 70s wokeness was in many ways much more radical than the modern version because the modern version is filtered through a million Redditors. You know, it's like, if you look at, you know, there's, uh, who is the, I'm sure Dwork, and I don't want to, I don't want to label one person if it's, if it's the wrong person, but so there was a feminist who was arguing that all penetration is rape, that penetrative sex is, is rape. And it's like, by inherently, that's bonkers. But if someone, and, and no one's going to say that today, maybe some, ran, maybe like one random Twitter will say it and get like ratio to hell. But like a serious scholar at the time was writing it and other serious scholars were reading that and saying, well, hmm, maybe all penetration is rape. And, and so the wokeness is, is actually a bit tamer. It's just more popular because now you can put it in your Facebook group and, you know, you can like now like the knitting circle of America, the knitting society of America or whatever can like have its own fury over wokeness instead of just like academia and street activists and whoever was doing it at the time because of media tech. <laughs> so anyway, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's all the same stuff. We're just, we took all the stuff of, that we developed in the sixties and seventies and we mass marketed it. We created new media technologies and we mass marketed it. So now you too can be Andrew. You too can be, um, you know, um, I don't know, like Fred Hampton. You can be like anyone that you want, any radical figure. Now it's you, you and your Twitter account. And so that's what we have. Now. And that's why, that's why everything I think is, is the way it is. And, um, you know, we, we talk about these big political for these like economic forces. We're like, well, there's people who are disillusioned because they came of age in the great recession and couldn't get a job and blah, blah. We think of these materialistic things because ultimately, you know, we're all a bunch of little Karl Marxists who think that like everything is traceable to like dollars. But in fact, I think it's just like technology and, uh, and memes, you know, these, these memes we built in the 60s and 70s are now just getting mass marketed to everybody. So we're having the same conflicts except instead of like some random like bunch of construction workers going and rioting and like beating up lefties in the streets of New York. Uh, now it's like, I don't know, like the alt-right. <laughs> that's, that's the thing now. Um, it's stupid. I don't like it at all. You know, and I don't know, I don't know whether things will work out differently this time. I, I can't, you know, in terms of, because when you, when you mass market cultural change, uh, you can get different thing. You can get different results. Maybe all of America will end up looking like academia ended up looking like, but probably not. Um, maybe conservatism will have a resurgence. Maybe Yunkin's victory. I just can't say Yunkin's name without laughing. Um, <laughs> Yunkin. <laughs> but like maybe <laughs> that was in the in the nineties. This is our main, uh, you know, sort of. Um, this is our main sort of diss on conservatives was to say their name. Newt. <laughs> His name's Newt. Um, but like, that was a heck of a name. That was a heck of a name. And now we've got Yunkin, Yunkin Yonuts. <laughs> and so like, maybe he, maybe he's the next Reagan. Maybe he's going to come out with like, he's going to have his sunny optimism. America is great kind of, you know, thing for public consumption. And then secretly like his, all his people will be out trying to figure out how to like screw black people out of like a little bit of money <laughs> like that, which is Reagan. Um, and then like, maybe that's Yunkin. Maybe, maybe we're going to well, get the return of the conservative movement. But I, the problem is that, unfortunately, I think that this iteration is going to, immigration will be its abortion. By the way, is, is Jason raising his hand here, or is he just pumping emojis out of the... No, he's just loving what he's He's just emojiing. All right. So I can't, no, there's, a, there's another way to raise Oh, I see. I, I've seen that look, hand. Yeah. All right. So, like, I, I mean, unfortunately, you know, if we, could, if we could replay the past, there would be a lot of bad things, a lot of, you know... There were a lot of negative things about the neoliberal age of like the the 80s and 90s and early 2000s that sort of followed. I mean, Iraq wars is one, obviously, but then like you know inequality and all that stuff was bad. I don't necessarily want to like replay everything about that age, but then if we could replay our embrace of immigration and our embrace of right. that, that would be yes. that would be good. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen because I think that as 
Christianity has lost its its dominance, lost its its centrality to conservative culture and politics. What's what's um, you know sort of this this Trumpian xenophobia has replaced it as this unifying creed. The sphere of the great replacement has replaced like you know Jesus as the animating thing that people care about. It's not about the war on Christmas. It's just about like the invaders and then that we could immigration could drop to zero tomorrow and people would still be talking about the great replacement and it's we're going to be saddled with this for a generation and until until america can regain its unification its, its sense of confidence somehow we're gonna i don't think we're gonna have the kind of broad acceptance of large-scale immigration that we had uh during the time when we were kids i just don't and so that's pessimistic and and we can do stuff on the edges we can do smart policy on the edges but i'm i'm a little bit despairing of our ability to like bring the 90s back in terms of immigration i think if i can sum up smithian thought history repeats itself technology has accelerated it and america needs its confidence back um there you go i think it's a great um it's a great ideology. It's a great. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, we we didn't get a chance to talk about macro or anything, but I, I try to keep these closer to an hour. Uh, it's been a great chat, so we'll have to do it again sometime. Maybe we can focus on macro. Stuff. Likewise, we can be more economical. Um, I, I almost know. feel like yeah, people are a little tired of economics. Like people are a little like you know the particulars of like inflation and stuff like that. I feel like I I still want to write about that all the time, and yet I feel this great pressure to like write about critical race theory. What do I even know about that? Nothing. Like. But I feel great. It's hard to say. Everyone wants to I hear mean, about it. We're we're in the economic content business, so we better hope that that's not uh, that's not really true. It felt I remember thinking like once the Great Recession's over, people are going to get sick of uh, economics. But like here we are with all sort of new crazy stuff happening. So I'm optimistic. If not for the country and the culture and everything, I'm optimistic for the economics content industry. So that's that's we got that. I am. I think first. I think the future of the near future of economic uh, commentary is really like. Uh, JD Medlock kind of stuff. If you know who that is on Twitter, um, yeah, everybody, everybody knows. knows Medlock. I think that that sort of, you know, reimagining reimagining ways to actually, you know, reduce precarity and give people like a, a safety cushion in our society. That's that's the future, and I think that you can see because it's something that's sort of free from the culture wars. It's that's a that's a third direction. It's, that's the third way. You know, Clinton talked about the third way. The real third way is just getting people oriented towards something constructive. And a constructive thing we can do is hand people cash so that, you know, their lives aren't aren't, you know, so so that it, it eases and alleviates and ameliorates and salves the precarity uh, that the neoliberal age, if I may use such a term, has saddled us all with. You know, it re- in economics terms it reduces transaction costs. There you go. Um, it reduces transaction costs and provides insurance. There you go. But that's that's, that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely it's a whole. That's a whole can of worms. We'll 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 file that one under debate for next time. Um, oh yeah, let's so, let's do it again I, and let's talk about let's talk about that stuff next time. Let's talk about like all right. cash benefits and and the welfare state and like you know risk and all that stuff. All right, next time. Thanks, Noah. All right, thanks, man. See ya.